As a result of his political affiliations and the fact that he owed an awful lot of people an awful lot of money, Richard Wagner was forced to leave his home in Dresden in 1849. He went first to Weimar and then with the aid of a false passport on to Switzerland. And then by an extraordinary twist of good luck, and Wagner had, I think, more than his fair share of those through his life, a rich silk merchant called Otto Wesendonck bought an estate on the outskirts of Zurich and installed Wagner in a villa in the grounds in return for a very modest rent. Now, the plot thickens somewhat because Wesendonck had a young, pretty and artistic wife called Matilda, who was already very much under Wagner's spell. And we know this because some of the early drafts of Die Walküre have references to her. He dedicated his E-flat major piano sonata to her and indeed the second draft of his Faust overture. But back in January 1855, Wagner had written to Liszt and wrote the following. Since I have never in my whole life tasted the true happiness of love, I intend raising a monument to that most beautiful of dreams in which this love shall, for once, be utterly fulfilled. I have in mind a plan for Tristan and Isolde, the simplest but most full-blooded musical conception, with the black flag that waves at the end of it, I shall shroud myself to die. Now, the affair that he was conducting with Matilda undoubtedly played some part in the formation of this plan. By August 1857, so fanned was he by her attentions and by her intense interest in him that he put aside any work he was doing on Siegfried and turned rather to the story of Tristan and Isolde, forming an epic poem based on the myth. And on these heady summer nights in that year, they would sit together in the villa and he would read her the drafts, the work he'd been doing that particular day. She, in return, then wrote five passionate love poems, which then in the winter of that year, alongside composing the first act of Tristan, he set for voice and piano. Now, it's interesting to think about the, the role Matilda saw herself playing in Wagner's life. Remember, Wagner was, theoretically anyway, a very happily married man. Matilda saw herself as a disciple and a prophet of a great artist, a physical and mental inspiration. And she wrote these poems so much under Wagner's personal and literary spell that in a way they're his poems just as much as hers. Now, I'm joined for this session by the BBC Concert Orchestra leader, Cynthia Fleming, so it's clear that we're not going to be doing the version for voice and piano, but rather five extraordinary orchestrations of these songs, the first four of which were made by Felix Mottl, who was a great disciple of Wagner's, a very successful conductor, about two generations below Wagner. He left the last song because Wagner had already scored that himself, for reasons which I'll explain to you a little later on. Now, to sing these songs with us, we're delighted to be joined by the mezzo-soprano Jane Irwin. Jane, let's have a look straight away at the uh, translation of De Engel, the first song of the set. Okay, well, it's basically a, a poem about a guardian angel, and it's a very comforting idea of having a guardian angel through your life and being escorted to heaven. In early days of childhood, I often heard tales of angels who exchanged the supreme bliss of heaven for the light of earth. So that where a heart languishes, weighed down with care, hidden from the world, and where it would quietly bleed to death and perish in floods of tears, and where its prayer ardently pleads only for salvation, there the angel floats down and gently bears it heavenward. Yes, an angel came down to me too, and on radiant pinions carries my spirit 
far from care, aloft to heaven. Now, it doesn't take much to realize that the angel she's talking about who comes down and becomes her salvation is indeed Richard Wagner. There is right at the outset what I would call the angel motif, which is very much at the center of this song and then recurs in a variety of other ways throughout the cycle. And you'll see, actually, once we've started going and once the voice joins, how the voice rises literally like an angel, totally organically out of this texture. Did you notice that uh, shortly after the voice had risen phoenix-like or angel-like out of that texture, on the actual word engel, angel, the harmony shifted deliciously from G major down a tone to F major, the most magical transformation, purely internality. Now, immediately following where we stopped, a very different character takes up. We slip into the minor, these words here, so that whoever with sorrowing heart languishes hidden from the world, whoever bleeds to silent death, passing away in floods of tears, whoever with fervor prays only for release from life, to him the angel descends. You get these dark, brooding, pulsating chords in the clarinet and bassoon, very much in keeping with this darker sense. Das Wagner was, I think it's very clear to Matilda, some kind of artistic redeemer. And Wagner returned the compliment. If you think about Act One of Tristan, certainly the draft of the, uh, the Tristan is dedicated to the angel who has lifted me so high. And this becomes first person now. This section of the poem that we referred to just now, which is all about, yes, an angel came to me and with his shining golden wings carried me far away from every pain. Let's look first of all what the violins, the oboe and the clarinet have. Again, the angel motif, this rocking motif, and a delicious kind of interweaving. The violas and the cellos are also at it, this rocking figure, colouring it and texturing it.
finally, icing on the cake, we'll add Jane, the voice over the top of this, the angel coming to her specifically and saving her. Now, the second song is called Steher Stille, Stand Still, literally, or Be Still. And what this is, in essence, is a journey from being imprisoned by your desire. The piece starts very darkly in C minor, very turbulently, but leading to a place of great serenity by the end of the poem, by the end of the song, where desire is no longer a big distraction. The theory being that if you can do away with your desire, then you can experience a truer form of joy. And the piece ends in C major, very much with that sensibility. It is turbulent, as I say. I mean, the first few lines give you that sense very clearly. Rushing, roaring, wheel of time, knife blade of eternity, glowing spheres in distant space, closed about the globe of Earth. Just listen to these dramatic changes, surges in dynamic or volume that we get right in the start. Let's perform it pretty now. So the singer ends that line very assertively, and the orchestra is also, incidentally, at its very largest in this song. There are two more horns, Felix Mottl, the orchestrator, adds in from only two in the previous song to four in this number. We also have the addition of a trumpet and even a little timpani roll towards the end of the song. The only time the instrument plays, rather an excessive luxury, you might say. Jane, the writing is, I think, deliberately awkward here. You know, it's very chromatic, lots of very cramped and constricted intervals. It's a challenge to sing, just from that point alone. The singer's low in the voice, and that's, that's always a challenge. And I suppose that's where you need a Wagnerian voice that's going to cut through that thick orchestration. Most of these songs are in the leader tradition, a lot of intimate moments, but this needs a bit of heft. 
but he just gets more and more sinewy with his chromaticism. Would you mind yeah. possibly just singing us the very first phrase of the song, and then we'll, com- we'll compare and contrast it with how he's developed yeah. it? Sausend ist brausend ist rat der Zeit. Now let's go on to Halter an dich, which is essentially the same rhythmic figure anyway, but now it's become so much more chromatic. Halter an dich, zeugende Kraft. It's incredibly intense, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, no interval is a natural or sort of consonant one, as it were. And just listen to how the orchestra rise up chromatically themselves. A piece of, of striving, getting ever tauter and not here. Now, the third verse we're just getting into here gets incredibly Tristan-esque. So that in sweet and happy forgetting, I might measure the worth of joy when I drinks in the joy of I, when soul is sunk in another's soul. And then the section we're getting into now, much broader, slower music, the absolute crux, really, of, of the poem. The inner soul will beget no more desire. And Wagner strips away the accompaniment altogether, leaving the voice in the end completely naked and exposed. This is the standstill moment of the poem's title. naked than that. Now there's a theory that the Wagner and Matilda relationship was unconsummated, a relationship of unfulfilled longing therefore, and that these songs are the effusion of two people denied the ultimate satisfaction. Hence this need in the poem to have your desire removed. It's quite interesting because around about this time Wagner was very much himself under the spell of the great philosopher Arthur Schopenhauer. And Schopenhauer's great theory was basically about denial of the will. And if you can successfully achieve a total subjugation, denial of the will, then the consequent result of that is a release from any form of suffering. So you can see this is quite barbed stuff. Wagner really believes in this philosophy at this time. And obviously Matilda has picked up on this. Her words express it. Wagner's music, therefore, 
by, by note also expresses it. The next song in the Wesendonck leader is somewhat prosaically called Im Treibhaus, literally, in the greenhouse. Now this song is specifically a study for Tristan Nizalda. The music was incorporated into Act 3 of the opera with some certain rhythmic alterations. Now, let's look first of all at how it opens. You get this extraordinary kind of doom-laden theme, little three-note motif, basically, which keeps reiterating. So the way the violins effectively peter out, dragging up and up into the ether, melancholic and despondent. Where do we go from here? The song is kind of over before it started, but of course that's not the case. Wagner makes much of this doom-laden figure. Has he the resolve, though, to continue coherently, to find an emotional through-line? Let's find out how. Never has a duet between voice and viola been more bleak and pessimistic. Children of a distant clime, why do you mourn? Basically, the story of being in the greenhouse of this poem, it's a, a classic of all romantically-minded souls, particularly in the 19th century, to take solace in nature or to find a oneness with nature, using nature as a metaphor for one's own struggles and desperation. And what she seems to be suggesting here, Matilda Weisendonck, that is, that there can be no joy in creation, in existence, only hopelessness and death. And Wagner's setting of this could so easily be made of heady stuff, but he deliberately goes right the other way. And you can see just what an influence he was on Gustav Mahler. Just think for a second about Kinder Totenlieder. Now, listen, that same hopeless motif which began the song comes again now in the lower strings, but the voice has a completely new development over the top of it. Very provocative ninth in the flute there at that cadence, C-sharp over a B major chord. And as you've heard, he develops the voice line in this second verse, not for Wagner, the strophic approach to writing songs. You know, new verse, but same old tune. At least not for the voice. You could argue that the orchestra are the strophic element in this song, because that same melancholic 
desperate and hopeless figure that we heard right at the start keeps recurring. And the words here, wide in yearning desire, you spread out your arms. This is the flowers she's talking about. Of course, they're a metaphor for something else. You spread out your arms and embrace the maddening void, the horror of empty space. We get to another moment of stasis on the words, Well, I do know, poor plants, that we share one destiny. Even with light and glass above us, in the greenhouse, remember, our homeland is not here. Gem. It's almost like operatic restative. Having sung in a number of ring cycles, it has echoes of that very conversational, through-written sort of feel. Yeah. The text here, just as the sun gladly withdraws from the empty light of day, so does he who truly sorrows veil himself in the dark silence. And we do quite literally veil ourselves in the darkness of bassoon, cello and bass. Still, vids, still vids, and the cello, the bass is on their own now with that despondent motif. Then we get some fantastic word painting. The words are a rustling motion fills the darkened space, and this amazing tremolando, very fast stroke of the bow on a stringed instrument, also to be played sul ponticello over the bridge of the instrument, creating a very kind of metallic, sort of iridescent sound.
lovely piece of web painting there as well. The singer speaking of, I see heavy drops suspended on the green edges of the leaves. And you get that pizzicato and clarinet on weak beats of the bar, just putting in those droplets in the most delicate way. We'll just play the final bars now, a final utterance of this numb despondency motif, but this time quieter, and therefore perhaps more internalized. Again, ending with a high and naked chord, unsupported and weak. The fourth song, Schmerzen, which means pains, has a colossal mood shift to it. And the chord that opens it is actually the chord which ends up opening Act Two of Tristan. We've been waiting and waiting for this outburst, you might think. A tremendous sense of dramatic timing in Wagner. Here it is. blazes with heat appropriately because the poem is using the sun here as a metaphor for the inevitable pain and sorrow of life. It's very tough being a romantic soul. You get sun, you weep every evening until your fair eyes are red when bathing in the sea's mirror you reach your early death. Yet you rise with accustomed splendor, glory of the gloomy world, newly awakened at morning as a proud victorious hero. So the other side of the sun, not just the doomy one. that kind of empty fanfare that the winds and brass have on the end of that phrase. The sun, newly awakened, awakened at morning, rising as a proud, victorious hero. But whilst it's an acknowledgement that the sun does still rise every day, it still, because of the empty little fanfare, I suppose, reminds you that it's an empty gesture. Only speaking, of course, because the Tristan chord coming again immediately afterwards, you get that sense of contrast. But it's more muted this time. Why, my heart, pity you so when the sun himself must despair, when the sun must sink? You get that very strongly. Let's just play it now.
and the sun rising on an endlessly dying world, you might say. Now, the final song of these Wesendonk Lieder is called Träumer, meaning literally dreams. And like Im Treibhaus, the greenhouse song from earlier, this is another study for Tristan. It's the only song of the five that Wagner himself orchestrated, originally with a solo violin taking the voice line. This was because he wanted a performance under Matilda Wesendonk's bedroom window on her 29th birthday, which is the 23rd of December, 1857. And uh, it is in itself, therefore, a lovely precursor to 13 years later, Wagner's Siegfried Idel played on the staircase this time as a birthday present to Cosima Wagner. There's a sense now of resolution here, a rapturous and even contented epilogue after all the heartache that's been expressed before. The introduction, which we'll play for you now, is much longer than in any of the previous songs. And it really just consists of a shifting tonality based around a, the same core bass line which slowly but surely takes on different colours. I think it's a bit like looking at a landscape through a mirage or a heat haze. Much use of the ninth, you'll hear in the winds that come in, the clarinets and bassoons initially over the top, which is exactly the same figure that the singer has when she starts with the word Träume, a ninth to an eighth, the most delicious suspension in music. only then, finally, does the voice enter. Jane, do you want to just give us a translation of this last song? There's just a feeling of a sort of blissful utopia, that's how I see it. And again, at the very end, you're talking about sinking into a tomb or a grave, but in the most blissful way, just as Isolde does at the very end of Tristan and Isolde. So, tell me, what wondrous dreams hold my senses in thrall? that they have not dissolved like empty bubbles into nothingness. Dreams that with every hour, every day, bloom more sweetly and with their heavenly tidings blissfully course through my heart. Dreams that like a sublime radiance penetrate the soul, there to paint an everlasting image, oblivion, remembrance. Dreams as when the spring sun kisses the blossoms out of the snow, so that the new day welcomes them to unsuspected bliss, and they grow and bloom and, dreaming, pour out their fragrance, gently fade away upon your breast, and then sink into the tomb. Well, let's start from exactly where you start now, Jane, in this song. Tell me what wondrous dream hold my senses in thrall. Just listen, if you will very carefully to Jane's opening phrase. It's a perfect arch shape. It rises up to the middle and goes back down, almost as a mirror image down the other side, and that forms a template for the melodic design of this whole song. 
So first of all, you can hear just what a gift he had for melodic development, that little arch-like shape of the very first part of the phrase, gradually exploring new possibilities for itself. Just where we got to, or just before where we got to, the strings had a tiny respite from their throbbing chord, which appropriately was under the line of text, these dreams have not dissolved like empty bubbles into nothingness, into oblivion, never far from extreme word painting here. And he continues to develop purely from that opening vocal phrase. We'll play the next section now, and you'll hear in the voice Wagner now putting the spotlight on the dotted rhythm that was in that first motif. And he builds a whole subsidiary idea out of it. Dreams that with every hour, every day, bloom more sweetly. We'll just play from uh, two before four on Träumer. Here's a C natural. Notice every time Jane has the word Träumer, dreams, it's always a ninth above the chord. That same interval each time. Very Tristan-esque and absolutely ideal for this particular sense. So from now on, towards the end of the song, you get a growing sense of serenity and acceptance. The voice ends very appropriately on another ninth. orchestral end piece is pretty much an exact mirror image of the long introduction to the song. Before we perform the Weisendonck leader of Richard Wagner, are there any questions? Do you think that uh, Mottl's orchestration suffers at all in comparison with Wagner's own? It's a very interesting question. I used to think definitely, when I first learnt these pieces several years ago, 
I was very much of the opinion that Mottl's orchestrations left quite a lot to be desired. I didn't feel they went far enough further from the piano accompaniment that Wagner left. And I used to compare them very unfavorably with possibly, well certainly equally well-known, if not maybe more well-known orchestrations of all five of the songs by Hans Werner Henser from 1976, which take the piece and treat it very much more like chamber music. It's a chamber ensemble scoring. So there is a kind of a lustrousness about each particular voice within the whole, orchestral voice I mean, in Henser's version. This is very much more orchestration of its day, of its time. But in fact now, I find I've gone the other way. I think that Henser's Henson's version is maybe too self-indulgent, that part of the brilliance of Mottl's conception of Wagner's music is not to overegg it, not to go too far. He could have made the textures so much richer, fatter, more juicy, and I think they would have ended up breaking the back of what, at their very heart, are incredibly tender utterances. Uh, yes, do you think um, any significant comparisons can be made between this and Strauss's four last songs? They both have that feel of sort of autumnal sort of melancholy. They do, absolutely. I mean, I suppose Strauss's full of songs are more about eternity and mortality and bidding farewell to life as a whole. This is much more about the wondrousness of being obsessively in love with someone. So, ladies and gentlemen, now with the BBC Concert Orchestra, Cynthia Fleming, their leader, me, Charles Hayeswood, the mezzo-soprano Jane Urban, will now perform Richard Wagner's five Wesendonk leader. <laughs> 